Well, it's great to be uh, here with all of you, all of you who are joining from different places in your homes and other locales. Uh, my name is John Campbell. For, I think I've met most of you at this point, but I serve as the Director of Advancement uh, and the Director of Technology. Uh, I am a graduate of here. I sat where you are sitting uh, many years ago at this point. Um, and I served in a pastoral ministry for over a decade, primarily in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, but also in some, you know, part-time student gigs in Hansport and Fredericton and all over, all the good places. Um, this passage that I, I want to share with you today uh, is an interesting one. I, I, have you ever had that experience where the Lord lays a thing on your heart and you, you're just like, why? And you don't really want to preach on it, but it's there. And I believe that all scripture is profitable uh, for something. And so here we are, the riot at Ephesus. Philo of Byzantium. He was a Greek engineer, physicist, and writer on mechanics. Sounds like my kind of guy. He once said, or wrote, I suppose, I have seen the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon, the statue of Olympian Zeus, the Colossus of Rhodes, the mighty works of the high pyramids and the tomb of Mesulus. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus rising to the clouds, all of these other wonders were put in the shade. That's engineer speak for it was really nice. <laughs> the city of Ephesus, to understand this passage that we're reading, we need to understand the city of Ephesus. It was an important city in the Roman world. It was the third largest city, population of about 200,000 or more, it's estimated. It was the gateway to Asia. Important crossroads met there, an important port. It was a center for trade and economics. But beyond that, it was known for to be the home of the goddess Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of animals, the hunt, vegetation, and interestingly, chastity and childbirth. She was identified by the Romans as the goddess Diana, and Artemis was the daughter of Zeus and the twin sister of Apollo. The worship of Artemis had spread all over the known world, and Ephesus was known for it. The temple itself in Ephesus was a, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People made pilgrimages year after year to come and worship, especially at the festival times. The temple, 377 feet long, 180 feet wide, 60 feet high, made of pure marble. Uh, it was actually the third one. It had been burned down a couple of times, but we won't. This was the nice one. And Artemis was the source of pride and recognition and of wealth. And to be an Ephesian was to worship Artemis. I have been racking my brains for a modern day example of how the two are so tightly enshrined. And there, honestly, I can't find a good comparison. Uh, to be an Ephesian was to worship Artemis. And so this is the place where Paul on his third missionary journey sets up shop for two years. And from there, he plants a church, which becomes a very strong church. And from there, the gospel spreads to not only the city, but to all of Asia. And we're set up in the book of Acts with Luke, a, a fight that's coming between the Lord God Almighty and Artemis. And the two are contrasted and compared when they're talking about Artemis. Who is going to win? Both are renowned. Both are popular. Both are growing as they're going. And this passage is the linchpin in the turning of the tides. The crazy thing about this passage is what causes the riot and what causes the fight. Paul had been there for many years. He was actually almost ready to leave at this point after the end of the two years. 
when this riot happened. And what were they upset about? Were they upset about Paul healing the sick? Nope. That had been going on for a while. That didn't cause any riots. Were they mad because the believers in Jesus Christ had the power to cast out demons? And then when seven non-believers who were trained in higher magicians tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, the demons said, I don't know you, and jumped on them and beat them up. I really wanted to preach on that passage, but apparently I'm, that's not that's for another day. Were they mad because people were burning scrolls of magical spells and making as they turned to the way? Not really. Were they even angry because Paul was preaching, saying that gods made by human hands are no gods at all? No. That really didn't upset them either. What upset them was the money. The focus of the fight were the finances. This is where it came to a head. They realized that if people started following Jesus, they were going to stop buying the shrines that they were making. Less pilgrims would come. And for them, as silversmiths and artists and artisans and tradespeople, it meant they were going to be financially impacted. And that was the line that caused it. But interestingly enough, that's not how they stir up the crowd. While Demetrius, who's actually at the center of this story, that's his motivation as far as what Luke insinuates in, in, the, in the text. He starts whipping up people and getting them furious by first religious persecution. Great as Artemis. Oh, we can't let Artemis, you know, be, be pushed aside for this, this Lord and this Jesus. And then he wraps it in nationalism. Oh, well, if this happens, then Ephesus, which is the, you know, the shining jewel of the Roman Empire, won't have a high prestige place. And we as Ephesians want to keep that high. That would never happen today, of course. And so they get this big mob and they, they rush down to the amphitheater that seats tens of thousands of people. And, and, and it's a confused mob, which is honestly the best kind of mob if you're trying to do this sort of thing. They didn't know even why they were there. And then they held this little trial. They, they, they don't even get Paul. They, they grab a couple of people of his followers and bring him down. And Paul wants to go. And the leaders say, no, Paul, don't, don't go down there. There's some wisdom and leadership in that maybe. It was all about the finances. Honestly, it has echoes of some business meetings I've been in the churches. It probably doesn't come to you as a surprise that finances are frequently the focus of friction, fighting, and fear. Where money intersects ministry, sometimes bad things can happen. And I want to talk to you about that today and look at the lives as we are training for people, where we're training to be equipped for ministry, where we're serving in leadership positions, whether that's laity or clergy in different churches, we need to be aware and we need to talk about and be prepared for the friction, the fight of finances, wherever we end up ourselves. And I want to look in three places today. One, in our interaction with our communities, internally in our churches as an organization, and then the really hard one <laughs> in each of our lives. In the world, the world is paying attention to how churches use their money for better or for worse. To make this point, I just, I want to read to you two news articles that I found that I think highlight on opposite ends of the public perception of how churches use their finances. The first one uh, was actually from last November, uh, November 27th, 2020. Uh, the headlines from the New York Times reads, churches step in where politicians will not. 
The subtitle was, why do we need acts of charity to rescue Americans from crushing medical bills? I wanna read you the opening paragraph. It says, Vanessa Matos couldn't believe what she was reading. Quote, I was like, okay, this is a scam. She recalled of the letter that she received in February. Her husband, she said, had the same reaction. Yeah, this is not real, but it was. Ms. Mateo's medical debt, more than $900 owed because of complications from a surgery she had at a local hospital where she had worked as a nurse, had been forgiven and paid for by strangers at a church she had never been to. Adam Mayberry, the lead pastor of that congregation, a multi-ethnic 1,400-member Boston area community, a church community, doesn't know Ms. Mateos, and she doesn't know him. The two have never even spoken. But he told me, she said, it doesn't take a theologian to connect the dots. Jesus paid my debt at unbelievable cost to himself. So it probably makes sense for me to pay another person's debt at some degree of cost to myself. It's one of many churches throughout the states who are buying up medical debt that are sold and traded as a cap and gain system on the open markets where companies can buy these and then debt collectors can go and try to get the money from these people who owe money for medical because they didn't have insurance. And churches are spending millions to buy up those loans and forgive them. The New York Times, they're paying attention. Compare that to this CBC headline from June 30th, 2021. Uh, this is uh, from Saskatchewan. Critics blast Catholic Church for spending after commitment to residential school survivors went unmet. The article begins, a growing chorus from across Canada is demanding the Catholic Church pay the full 25 million it once promised to residential school survivors, saying it is shameful for the money to remain unpaid while tens of millions are spent on elaborate church buildings. CBC News has learned of a $17 million fundraising campaign currently underway for the cathedral renovations and new construction in the Archdiocese of Regina. That's in addition to the $16 million church that opened last year in Canmore, Alberta, and the 28.5 million cathedral built in Saskatoon a few years ago. So I ask you, which of these examples is the gospel of Christ being demonstrated? Which of these ways is closer to the kingdom of God? Go and do likewise. But financial fights aren't about finances, aren't uh, confined to outside of the church walls. It may not or may come a surprise, I hope not, that sometimes internally we can fight a little bit about finances in our churches. The battles that I've seen, the constant battles, I mean, the, They've been going on as, for as long as the church has existed. Lord, 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 don't let her waste all that oil and that perfume on you. That could have been sold and given to, uh, to, to, to the needy. That's what we should have done with that. What a waste of money, said the church treasurer. Time and time again, I have seen it in church that the two kind of side issues that come at it are those people who want to understand uh, the mission of the church that Jesus is calling us to and want to push forward in faith, while other people who are looking at the bottom line and the finances of what they think is actually the limit to what they can do and trying to find a balance in between the two. And you know what? Rightly so. The Lord told us to be wise and to be good stewards. But yet we are far too much like the servant who buries the treasure, who doesn't want to take the risk, puts it in the ground and waiting for the Lord to return. 
there's a lot of different areas kind of in church and ministry that we could talk about um, where this kind of pokes up its head. But I wanted to share one with you that you may not be as familiar with, and that is the issue of endowments. Endowed money is money that is given, that is taken and put into a bank account or into some sort of investment portfolio. It earns money every year, some interest or some returns on the investment, and that money is brought in to help pay for whatever it is to pay for. Sounds like a great, a great idea. We have uh, endowments here at the college. It helps us pay for the what we do. It helps to provide all the scholarships that we are able to so generously hand out, and we're very, very thankful for them. But there is a dangerous side to, to endowments. I was talking with our academic deans, uh, Dr. Steve McMullen, because uh, he just recently did a study on this, and he shared a couple of highlights that I wanted to share with you today, just to kind of make you aware of some of the things that he's finding. Uh, Steve did a, a study, kind of a review of looking at churches with endowed funds and looking intentionally kind of at the health of those congregations. And so the three things I want to share with you are this. One, that the declining congregations are much more likely to have endowment funds than growing congregations. In fact, most growing congregations have no savings at all. And if they do, they generally increase their budget year the next year uh, because they see so much need around them and they long to meet those needs. Number two, endowment funds tend to be spent mainly on maintenance, not on mission, uh, with building maintenance being the most common use of those funds. The building becomes more important than the mission, and rarely do churches ask how the money and savings might be used to accomplish the congregation's God-given mission. And three, endowment funds have unintended consequences, including church, uh, and there was a number that he listed, but the one I'll read for you is um, one of the consequences includes church leaders beginning to put faith in the investments and the return on them instead of faith in God. Plans for the future are based on how much money is available instead of being based on what God is calling the church to do and to carry out his mission. Steve does end the, the email that he sent me saying that it doesn't have to be this way, uh, that there are examples of churches that are able to hold endowments and still maintain uh, an eye on mission as they go. But he said they are exceedingly rare. And he said, practically speaking, they're basically incompatible. I'm not saying that you have to get rid of endowments from your churches and your organizations. They are a useful tool that the Lord gives us, but they need to be used in a way that furthers his mission. And as a people who are leading churches and being equipped to do so, we need to be able to prepare and be aware of the pull and haul that comes around and comes along inside of churches. But in order to do this, it really comes down, as most of these things do, to us individuals, us personally. In being equipped for ministry, you need to have the practical skills necessary to navigate the nuances of finances, income statements, cash flow, changes in net assets. For some of us, that may feel like learning another useless biblical language. Oh, but it's not. The, oh, there's one. Okay, there's one in the back. Understanding finances, you don't have to become an accountant. You don't have to become an expert. But like biblical languages, if you don't learn to read them for yourselves, you will rely on the interpretation of others, and that can lead to dangerous places. You need to develop a level of competency that will allow you yourself to assess the situation of the ministry in which you find yourself.
So grab a copy of your church's ministry budget. Come and see me. I'll walk you through it if you don't, if you really have trouble reading it. And when I get stumped, we'll go down the hallway and we'll see Matt and he'll straighten us out fully. But it's not just the hard skills that you need to know about finances in order to navigate these things. You need the soft skills around finances as well. For example, creating a budget isn't about sitting in your office on Tuesday afternoon, copying, pasting last year's budget, adding a 2% faith increase and printing it off in time for the budget meeting that night. You can do that once, maybe, and get away with it. A budget... <laughs> Yeah, control C, control V, it makes it even faster. No. A church budget is about anticipating the provision of God for the work of God by the people of God. A budget is a plan from whence you begin to follow God's will and where you will deviate from as the Spirit leads. A budget is just as much a spiritual exercise as anything else in a church. We need to know, <laughs> we need to understand these things. We need to understand the practice of the spiritual discipline of simplicity. I went and talked to Dr. John McNally about this, and we had a little chat about it. And the call to live at peace, there are practices that we can do in our lives to help us in pushing back against the lifestyle creep that inevitably happens to all of us. John covers this uh, in the Mentored Ministry course, I think Mentored Ministry 2, he said. So if you uh, aren't there yet, uh, hurry up and get there. But he has provided some good resources that you may find helpful, and I have some over here if you want to look at them in some listings you can see afterwards. But one of the things, a quote that he shared with me from G.K. Chesterton uh, was, was this that I found very helpful, that there are two ways to get enough in life. One is to accumulate more, and the other is to desire less. And then finally, the last thing I want to talk about today is about our personal relationship with money. We do a lot of work with you who are here studying on your personal formation, understanding your history, your past, and how that affects who you are today and how you approach ministry. And I believe that our history and our past experiences with money forms us in significant ways as well. When you think about your life, what you've gone through, what are your earliest recollections of money? When did you first know or come to realize that money existed? And was that a positive thing? Was it a negative thing? When you think of major milestones in your life that revolve around finances, taking the time to reflect to say, how does that play into my relation, my comfort, my knowledge of finances today? I grew up on a small farm in rural Nova Scotia, a family of seven. In my early days, we knew want, not abundance. I remember distinctly the time my parents had to come and ask my sister and I for the money in our piggy banks to make the mortgage payment. And in a lot of ways, when I think about my early childhood, even though over time, financially, our family became more secure, if I allow myself, I operate from a spot of not having, of worrying about the need, not operating out of an area of abundance. But I also grew up in a family of generosity. We gave even when we couldn't. 
of our time, of our possessions. We always had a foster kid living with us. We were also lived on a very steep hill in the winter. Inevitably, a trucker would put his truck off the road. And so we always kept a stack of food and blankets and things to care for the accidents that were inevitably going to happen on that road. And I look at those things and I think a lot of that, I think, has set me up into a place for the work I do today. And raising the funds and raising the support for this place. And I have to push myself when we look at new strategic priorities, new things we want to do that the Lord will provide. And he has. And in the six, seven years that I've been here, I have seen the Lord provide in ways that are just, come and ask me, I'll tell you. Um, but what about you? Does trusting in God's provision come easily to you or is it something that you have to work at? Are you able to empathize and understand people who had had a different financial experience from you, especially when you're sitting across the boardroom table at the church, having the argument about finances and money? Are you able to stand in a pulpit or sit across the table, look someone in the eye and ask them to give, knowing that it's going to hurt them to do so? After the riot in Ephesus, Paul leaves for Jerusalem. He goes the wrong way. He goes west first. But on his way back, he stops about 50 kilometers out of town. He, I think he was scared to go back in town. And he meets with the church elders there from Ephesus one last time. And he's quite sure, and he tells them that this will be the last time that he'll probably ever see them. And in chapter 21 is, is kind of his last words to the disciples. In the closing paragraph of it, what does Paul talk about? His personal relationship to money. And it's powerful to think of these things that he says in the shadow of the temple and what he proclaimed. These are, this is what he says in verse 32. He says, now I commit you to God and to the world of his grace, which can, be, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. nor Tesla or MacBook or iPhone. <laughs> you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and they prayed. My prayer for you is that we can take Paul's work, his actions, and his attitudes as an encouragement for us in our own lives. When we think about that place in Ephesus, the battle that started there, that turning point in Ephesus where the silversmiths were, were worried about their financial income, history tells us that they were wrong, at least in their own lifetime. The, the temple wasn't destroyed for another 200 years. Maybe their timing was just a little off. But the Lord moved in powerful ways in Ephesus. It changed the culture, including how those people used their money, and it changed the world around them. The physical fight, the physical fight, it's hard, it's messy, but it is important for the sake of the gospel. 
and for those who yet have not heard the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you are Lord, Lord above all lords. And Lord, we want you to be the center of our lives, to be sufficient, to be the cornerstone. Lord, help us. Help us in our churches and our organizations as we deal with something as prickly and difficult as finances and money to live in a way that you've called us to do. And Lord, in each of our individual lives, help us see, help us know, Lord, reveal to us the ways in which finances have shaped us for good or for ill, to name them, to understand them, and ask for your power and your redemption in those areas as well of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.